0: You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to renewedheartministries.com and click donate. And this, I believe, is the genius of the ethic of enemy love that Jesus and many others in history have taught, rightly understood. It enables one to to stand up to one's enemies while not becoming like them. It breaks the mimetic tendency that we as human beings have uh, to simply mimic each other, even in violence. Welcome to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is episode 313. Our title is The Ethic of Enemy Love, Part 2. Our feature text is Luke six twenty seven. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Now, in Part 1, we discussed what the ethic of enemy love may mean and what it might most definitely does not mean. Socially and historically, one of the most used methods for uniting a society or a community has been to rally that community against a common enemy. It's effective and it's easy. Produce a common enemy and people who were once enemies will join together even against that enemy. In Shakespeare's play Henry the 4th, Henry gives this advice to his son who will become Henry the 5th after him. This is part two, act four, scene five. Be it thy course to busy, giddy minds with foreign quarrels. That action, hence borne out, may waste the memory of former days. Another example is found in Luke's version of Jesus's arrest and trial and execution. Herod and Pilate, they they, they, they struck up a friendship. Uh, but until Jesus appeared on the scene, they had been enemies. In Luke 23, 12, it's says, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Jesus taught a different Way of living life together. One of the ethical threads in the fabric of the community that that Jesus was seeking to to found was, was that members would no longer be united in hatred for a common enemy. Rather, they'd be united in the practice of loving their enemies. Jesus was calling his own Jewish community back to its roots of enemy love when he said in Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it's Said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. This teaching, it went back centuries. In Proverbs 25, verse 2, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And you can cross reference that with the story where this is actually done in 2 Kings 6, 21 through 23. In Exodus 23, 4, and 5, it says, If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure. To return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Uh, and again, Proverbs 24, verse 17, this time. It says, do not gloat when your enemy falls, when they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. And you can cross-reference that with a parallel text in Job 31, 29. At the same time, in both Jewish and Christian scriptures, one can also find support absolutely for hating one's enemy. What made Jesus stand out in his own time and culture was his ability to parse and into, to interpret his own community's teachings in life-giving ways. And we're called to do the same thing. Jesus's vision of a just, safe, and compassionate society calls us to include those who even are presently our enemies, those who oppose a more compassionate society. For Jesus, Jesus, enemies were to be seen as capable of change. No person was disposable. No matter how wrong they may have been, we're all connected, all of us. And, and as difficult as it may be, we are in this uh, together. Now, let's talk about uh, the evolutionary survival ethic of our past as human beings. A few years ago, I placed my 16-year-old daughter on an airplane, and she flew from West Virginia to Colorado Colorado all by herself to visit her her grandmother. And because she was underage, she was assigned a a flight attendant to uh, 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 watch over her and get her safely uh, from our care to her grandmother's care. And before my daughter reached her grandmother, again, she had to comply with everything the flight attendant asked her to do. But once she was in her grandmother's company, think about it for a moment, it would have been foolish for her to cling to the flight attendant Attendant. The attendant would want my daughter to, to go with and listen now to her grandmother, even if over the course of the flight, my daughter and the attendant had become fondly attached to one another. Uh, it could be debated that hatred of one's enemies has, in the past, worked toward our survival as a human species. It might have gotten us to where we are today today. But even if that does prove true, I would offer that the time for such an ethic has passed. We've outgrown its usefulness. The future doesn't belong to those who hate, but to those who have found a way to love, even one's Enemies And remember, love is not naive. Enemy love doesn't mean that we accept our enemies' behaviors and their choices. It means we refuse to allow their actions to simply change who we are. We remain responsible for our own choices, and we are able to choose how we respond. We're response-able to our enemies' choices. We act proactively out of the, the kind of person that we choose to be. We don't simply react to the types of, of people our enemies choose to be. And as we said in part one, we are part of a humanity that also includes our enemies, yet we choose not to be the same kinds of people as our enemies are presently choosing to be. James Baldwin, who I admire Greatly, He wrote of this principle in the classic The Fire Next Time. On page 83, he writes, I am very concerned that American Negroes achieve their freedom here in the United States. But I'm also concerned for their dignity, for their health of their souls, and must oppose any attempt that Negroes may make to do to others what has been done to them. I think I know we see it around us every day, the spiritual wasteland to which that road leads it is so simple a fact and one that is so hard apparently to grasp whoever debases others is debasing himself. That is not a mystical statement, but a most realistic one, which is proved by the eyes of any Alabama sheriff. And I would not like to see Negroes ever arrive at so wretched a condition. Love, remember, it acknowledges the choices that our enemies make. Uh, Love even can obstruct enemies' harmful actions. Matter of fact, love calls us to obstruct our enemies' actions, their harmful actions. Yet it stops short of allowing a person to become the same type of person as their enemy. Love means choosing not to debase another person in the way that they've debased us. We, we don't ignore the actions of our enemies. We simply choose to be shaped by something greater than their actions. And this, I believe, is the genius of the ethic of enemy love that Jesus and many others in history have taught, rightly understood It enables one to to stand up to one's enemies while not becoming like them. It breaks the mimetic tendency that we as human beings have uh, to simply mimic each other. Even in violence, it breaks the chain and enables us to be different, to do differently than what has been done uh, to us. And while holding our enemies accountable, we can do so with a transformative, reparative, and a restorative perspective rather than with retribution in mind. And this approach holds on, it, remember, to our enemies' humanity. It seeks a path towards a just future that includes transformation for them, too. Dr. King, who strove to understand and, and rightfully apply this difficult ethic of enemy love, he stated uh, uh, the same thing in his sermon, Loving Your Enemies. It was delivered at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, November 1957. He spoke Now there is a final reason, I think, that Jesus says love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. There is a power that eventually transforms individuals, and that is why Jesus says love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. It is redemptive, and this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So it would seem that there, there really isn't a middle ground here. We either permit our enemy's actions to shape us, to determine the kind of people we will be, or we choose a path that has the potential without guarantee to shape our enemies as we choose to be the kind of people that that we aspire to be. Liberation theologies today uh, might say that we choose to remain free internally in this ethic, in our inmost being, while we work to become free uh, outwardly. Enemy love is difficult, no doubt, but most things that are worth it, they are. Uh, Heart group application this week, are there stories of enemy love that you find uh, compelling for you today? I want you to share one of these stories with your group. Number two, what did you learn from last week's exercise or practice? Remember in part one, I asked you to engage in a seven-day exercise. I want you to share your experience with your group and how can your heart group, how can it deepen its practice of enemy love collectively this coming year? Thanks for checking in with us this week right where you are. Keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, working towards justice. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week.